those days, Pat, where we have no time for, for the little th- chats that we so enjoy. Frivolous things. Fripperies. Yeah. Uh, we're going to go straight into... Uh, it is... Um, a busy day. Uh, we're going to have Gavin Comiskey on later on to talk rugby with us. And we have Kevin Brannigan in, uh, who has directed a fantastic documentary that's an RT1 tonight. So we're going to talk to them later. But uh, it is we're in a, in a sort of a, a newsmageddon, uh, most of which is dominated by, uh, by the FAI. <laughs> and that uh, modern chuckling that you hear in the background does, of course, belong to Emmett Malone, for whom these are salad days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> another another crisis at the FAI. Another Emmett Malone appearance on the, on the Irish Times podcast. Yeah, I get it, guys. We can only apologise, Emmett. Um, it struck me reading some of the stuff over the weekend, Emmett, that um, down the years when, when we would uh, grimly and fatally talk about the FAI yeah. and the consensus, you know, the cliches... A couple less notes on the conversation. Yeah, the great cliches, you know, that we would all say about the FAI and, and the you know, people go, ah, you know, it's a shambles or it's a basket case and all mm. that sort of stuff. Um, it turns out that, that we were nearly understating it. A, a little bit, you know that that that. Well, look, I tell you what, I think I think there's an interesting point there because yeah. I think if you go back far enough, like when people did talk about the FAI being a bit of a shambles, it was very leaky. It was a very leaky yes. organisation. Yeah. No, yeah. You know, very little happened in there that didn't make its way out one way or the other. And you know, you could say that you know, of course, I'm going to quite like that because I'm a journalist who mm. covers the FAI, and you know, I mean, you're looking at somebody who the first board meeting of the FAI I was sent to cover actually sat in the meeting by mistake. I, I was so young and naive, <laughs> I thought we could attend. So I sat there with my little notebook out and they started the meeting and then somebody went <coughs> kind of like pointed their head at me sitting beside them at which point somebody suggested that maybe I should step outside now, you know. But at the time it made very little practical difference, you know, like within, uh, within half an hour of the meeting ending you'd know everything that happened anyway. Right, you know, yeah. they might as well have let us sat and mm. sit at the table. Um, but, you know, it was very leaky. But do you know what? With leaking goes some sort of accountability. Mm. And so, you know, you had a kind of sense of what was going on in the place. People might have given out about the kind of divisions that went on, the arouse that went on at board level, the fact they couldn't agree on stuff, the fact they all had their own agendas. Um, But you kind of also got a sense that nothing could go too catastrophically wrong because it would be kind of caught well before mm. that they'd make a decision and people would kind of say whoa what happens if they go through with that and everything would be pulled back in and so it limited their ability to make any decisions um, but you know they couldn't make any kind of driving off the, the, the bus off the cliff decisions either Indeed. and what John Delaney went in there and did and what he prides himself I'm doing. He talks about it. I was watching, as I said to you earlier on. Somebody, somebody tagged me in a tweet last night <laughs> with the, uh, the John the, the Baptist video, and I, I and I, oh God, I watched it back. You know, I thought I, I went to just watch a couple of minutes of it, and then I just couldn't couldn't stop it. Slack jawed uh, in amazement at the whole thing. And what he brags about in that is the way he kind of sorted out the whole thing. He stopped. He he, he transformed a board. He transformed a board that previously, you know. Was 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 made up of people who were pushing their own agenda. Mm, Get that? Yeah, self interest, <laughs> self interest. And he did away with that, and he and he transformed it into something that you could drive a vision. Mm. And as we now see, mm. that's where you get when you have a guy like John Delaney, you know, pushing his own vision, mm. and nobody is going to the outside world saying this is what we're doing. Yeah. Um, 
and it was catastrophic. It has been absolutely the state of the place is absolutely incredible. And we see we see this remarkable piece by Neve Brennan in in in, in the Irish Times today. Um, that the number she talks about, but she also talks about the the kind of notion of board capture. And it was it was an amazing thing. I I think for me the one of the more remarkable things to come out of. Um, Explain what board capture is for. Sorry, board capture is just where the chief executive of an organisation essentially captures the board. Mm. They she just they like they, she, they have uh, you know they are so kind of malleable that um, that they get to the stage where they can do absolutely whatever they want and what's supposed to happen in these situations is the board are really kind of running things you know like the, the, the chief executive is driving things on a day to day and implementing what the board wants them to do but but the situation in, in board capture it's reversed the chief executive is absolutely driving the bus and the lads are just passengers and, and, and waving through absolutely anything that they want to do without question without scrutiny without kind of proper uh, responsibility and that seems to have been what happens here and the, the, the great illustration of that is that I had heard a story quite some time back about the, the 2014 deal so the, the contract uh, I didn't know the full extent of it I thought we, we, the, the, it had been known for some time that there was a 2 million euro pension so there's two elements to it he got 3 million euro he was promised 3 million euro in 2014 um, 2 million of it was a pension uh, which was going to be paid over 10 years 200 grand a year mm-hmm. from 2021 or 2022 I mean there seems to be a sense here that he was thought he might get out then you know so he'd get a million euro bonus uh, if he made it to 2021 and then from the following year on I think it was um, might be up by a year or so here uh, 200 grand a year for 10 years that like so not pension contributions but an actual pension 200 grand for 10 years uh, so 2 million euros so 3 million quid in total so I had heard a story of how this was decided but I only knew about 2 million of it not the, the full 3 at the time and um, uh, I had heard a story that uh, the uh, the so basically it was a subcommittee kind of uh, charge which apparently is fairly standard in business or large organisations or medium sized organisations which I really is um, whereby um, uh, Eddie Murray the treasurer and Michael Cody the, the honorary secretary and, and Cody was his man mm. Cody was the guy who, who did stuff for him and made sure everybody else you know played played ball uh, the two of them went off negotiated the deal came back to the board and I, the story I'd heard was uh, the board was that, that was kind of so far so kind of run of the mill they came back into the room and they put the contract on the on the table and said, right, the deal is done. And if anybody actually wants to look at what the deal is, there it is. You can look at it now. And John Delaney and Michael Cody and Eddie Murray sat there and looked at everybody. And everybody kind of thought to themselves, well, do you know what? If I pick up that piece of paper and look at it, I'm done. Yeah. You know, at the first opportunity, I will be off this board and I will be finished in football. And so they voted through a package which they had no idea about, right? So I was startled by this, but like a great many things in all of this, couldn't get it into the paper because you're basically, sure. I think it's fair to say, you know, questioning their abilities as directors, mm-hmm. right? So on Friday, when we had when this was all coming out and like the, the, the they're they're kind of confronting the full scale of the disaster, I asked Donald Conway about this. I put this precise uh, That's version of events yeah. to him, and his version of events, which was supposed to be a defence of of the board's position, was that the two guys came back into the room and simply said, "There's no change in his salary, mm. like the actual 360 grand a year that he was getting," and didn't say anything beyond that. And so there was this spectacular kind of omission beyond that, that they had just tagged on three million quid in bonus and, and pension payments. They didn't mention that at all. The lads, the lads voted it true because, sure, if they don't mention this stuff to us, how are we supposed to ask? I couldn't, and I they couldn't do not, believe that and that they was... Do not con- that ask was... to see a copy of the final contract, any of the kind of add-ons to it, nothing. They just, on the basis, 
this is their defense that on the basis of them just saying there was no there was no change to the salary that they voted true. But I see, you know, uh, there was all we could do to to you know on Friday afternoon to you know belt stuff through and put that that account in. I see somebody has gone back to Eddie Murray and Eddie Murray has come up with essentially the first version, except that the thing wasn't on the paper on the table. It was in John Delaney's office. Right. So his version of events <laughs> is that they came you in. You can go in and, and look at it any time ah, you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can get up now and you walk into John's office and you can look at it, you know. Uh, but, you know, don't be surprised if you don't make it back. But even the line that Conway gave, and I presume it was in response to that question that you asked him, he says, I can't ask about things when they don't give it to me. Yeah. It was, that was his line yeah, of the day. Yeah, which was also John Early's defense of his entire we can, time we can on, only, on We board. can only ask about the things that are, that are presented to yeah. us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was incredible. It was absolutely incredible. And, um, and, and John Early simply said that the, that the people who came to them were economical with the truth. And mm. there, there you go. That's, that's oh, sure. What, what are you going to do? So that's where they were. That's, that's, that's the board that's been running this organization for the last 15 years. So, and it's a board that has occasion. It started off when John took over as chief executive back in 2004. Um, it was a board that contained some critics. I mean, there was still division within the organization. And one by one, those critics were seen off. Mm. And one by one, they were replaced with people who knew what they had to do to stay on the board. And there have been exceptions along the way. Um, you hear the stories of people who went onto the board for a while and questioned them and stood up to them on particular issues. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, usually I'm mean, like not across the board, but they would they would pick their fights, but they would try to have a good, sometimes he would simply push things too far as far as they were concerned and they would raise issues at the board and they would be put in their place. And what we found was what we've seen in there is that uh, over time they were all they all were either kind of had it beaten out of them and they just left mm. or they rolled over and they accepted it and they stayed on board but then there's the people who never really stuck their head above the parapet at all as far as we're concerned you know so and I, and I was saying this the other day somebody uh, with regards to Donald Conway Donald Conway, the, the, in one of the, you know, Donald Conway, to the best of my knowledge, had no record. I, I did a profile of him a, a, a couple of months back and spoke to quite a, a lot of people who've been in and around the FAI for a long time. And not one of them ever suggested that he would have at any point demonstrated any huge faculty for critical thinking where John Delaney was concerned. No record of him take, challenging him on virtually anything, right? But you see him now, like from the day you were there, yeah. uh, Maliki, in the, in the Oireachtas Committee, yeah. when Delaney hit behind the lawyer yeah. and Conway suddenly had thrown, to do the talking. Yeah. Yeah. And he's quite impressive. Like yeah. he can handle himself. Yeah. He speaks well. He knows what the issues are. He can, you know, uh, uh, deal with the nuances of the situation. And, and in a way, that's good. But actually, in a way, it's bad because you wonder what was going on with him for the previous 15 years yeah. when he was on the board and, and doesn't seem to have uh, uh, felt the need to question anything much that was going on at all. Mm. And, the, and, the, and the theory seems to be that these people genuinely believed that flawed as he was, John, man was a miracle John worker. Was worth it, yeah, yeah. that, that, that you, you, took, you took the negatives with the positives and the po because the positives outweighed the negatives. Because what is forgotten, I guess, is that Delaney himself was a new broom whatever it was, 15 years ago. When, well, when, he certainly when. betrayed himself. Th but that was the, I'm, I'm, I'm not really too sure how anyone ever bought that. No, I understand you know? that. I mean, like you had, before he took the job, you had the 100,000 euro payment or sterling payment mm. to uh, the suggestion that uh, that Mick McCarthy's McCarthy, agent yeah. looked at for that as a signing bonus, which was clearly an attempt yeah. to stitch up Brendan Menton, you know, and further his own cause at the expense of the, the, the FAI were paying for a, a political manoeuvre. You had the situation where two guys from a PR agency came into the Irish Times here to 
brief me against Menton. They were being paid by the FAI. Mm. I mean, it was just unbelievable stuff, you know. But, and, what uh, saying, but that was what he was presented as. What he tried to, to present to himself the, as that. And, and you had people, yeah. you had people willing to, to wear. Guys, you, yeah. But there were people across the media all along who were saying that this is not the case. Yeah. And then you had people who should have known better, like Eamon Dunphy springs to mind, yes. people who should have known better, who were willing to go out, you know, into mainstream media and bat for him. There's a piece from Neve, Neve Brennan's um, article that's in the paper today. Neve Brennan is Professor of Management yeah. um, at the UCD Centre for Corporate Governance. And I just want to read a, a part of her piece today. Sure. The annual report also reveals almost complete absence of a system of internal control. This is within the FAI. The board did not keep proper books of account. The FAI had no procedure, sorry, procurement policies or procedures. There was no internal audit or compliance function. There are no protocols for business cases, options, appraisals or business justification. The FAI has no business plan. It is currently being drafted. That's one of the most damning paragraphs I've yeah, ever yeah, read. Yeah, yeah, I, I would say just it's a very small defence uh, of the organisation. I think the business plan bit is something that they've been working on for quite a while. I mean, I think the whole, their whole their 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 point on that would be their argument on that would be that they were trying to get a grip on what the starting point was, and that's been a six month process. It's I don't think it's finished with the twenty eighteen accounts, um, but there are things are such a shambles in there, and people had so little idea about the full extent of the liabilities. Um, that they needed to establish all of that before they can do a business plan. They need to know what they're going to mm. the banks with and say how much they need to get through the next four years. They need to know what their final kind of drawings down from UEFA are going to be in terms of against future TV deals and what they're going to have to leave themselves with from future TV deals to get through those subsequent years. I mean, the FAI, for the last few years, uh, as, as the situation worsened in there, have relied more and more heavily on drawing down money up front. And um, it's just another way of borrowing money. A sports direct thing, uh, yeah, people, sports is, is incredible. Is... Yeah, I mean, I'm still a little bit lost as to whether now, uh, whether the, there seems to be a general sense that at no point did John Delaney ever believe the FAI was going to have them as their kid sponsor. It just seems to have been a kind of mechanism to borrow money. Um, but but I'm not quite I'm not quite sure about that. The, this is the six point five million yeah, received from Sports Direct. Million. So they had so um, 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 not Umbro New Balance uh, top line is the Irish company mm. had a kind of option to 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 kind of you know um, first refusal or an ability to match or something. They had a clause that the FAI had to go back to them in some way for when when it came time to renew. Uh, and instead. Um, the FAI seems to have done this deal with, with Sports Direct with six and a half million quid in cash which they got and um, and so they got that but uh, but it's all it quickly unravelled and they couldn't deliver on it because they were contractually uh, obliged uh, to go back to top line all these sort of things and so they've had to, and, and, and there was a, an ability for Sports Direct to cancel at any time and so Sports Direct eventually did cancel and said so we want our money back and then they couldn't give the money back because they didn't have it and so now they've settled into this thing of paying 100 grand a, a month back to Sports Direct so but there does seem to I've heard more than one person at the FAI um suggest, uh, Paul Cook certainly did the other day, I think Noel Mooney did in a conversation with me before, th that their impression was that really this was just about borrowing money from somebody, uh, that there was never any uh, genuine belief mm. that, that the FAI was going to wear I, what's 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 the that Sports Direct brand, the, the Caramore is it? A, oh right, or whoever, yeah, yeah, you know, whoever, yeah, one yeah. of their brands, I think mm. they own, they used to own Dunlop anyway you know, but uh, Slazenger and all those, maybe it would have been one of those, but something like that, there never seemed to be a genuine belief that that's what, and, and to the best of my knowledge, Sports Direct haven't done any of 
of those deals previously, you know. But, you know, so it just seems to have been a mechanism to, to borrow money. But the, that was a part of a wider wider pattern in there, also tied into this kind of promise that Delaney had, had given that the association could be debt-free by 2020. Mm. And the only way you could do that was by drawing down huge amounts of advance money, pumping it into the stadium debt. <clears throat> Which had the obvious effect of leaving them with no cash coming in, you know, in the years that those sponsorship deals would normally have come in. Aside from the fact they were heavily discounting the deals to get the cash in in the first place. So I was kind of voodoo economics. I mean, I, I read a book about, I can't remember, oil exploration in Texas or something like that. And the bank, one of the banks that sprung up around that. And um, at one stage, chief executive was coming to work in Mickey Mouse ears. And at some point, you know, the other day, um, you're kind of thinking like, this is about the only thing this, this story is missing. It's just, it's awful. It's, it, and it is awful. It's kind of it's it's fu- yeah. It is funny. Yeah. It is funny. Yeah. It's like it's so crazy. It's funny, mm. but it's tragic as well because. Um because Delaney had the chutzpah to go before the Oireachtas Committee, I think, again, when we were there yes. and be asked about pay cuts and, and, and pension cuts up at the FAI. Yeah. And he was going like, you know, but, it's, but, but for the people who work for the FAI, it's not about the money, you know. Yeah. They know what a privilege it is to be, you know, to work in football. And, and it, it felt repulsive then, but my God, it's utterly disgusting. Um, something I was wondering over the weekend, Emmett, uh, is, was the book... Was the bucket going to hit the bottom of the well here eventually? Do you know what I mean? Was yeah. like was was, the, was like clearly the FAI was a, 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 an institution that was in real real trouble, regardless of whether John Delaney was at the head of it or yeah. not. Uh, and okay, so over the last six months, everything has been about Delaney, and everything <coughs> has been about you know yeah. his his payment or his his package, all of that sort of stuff. Sure. But what we found on Friday is like a much wider, broader yeah, yeah, problem. Yeah. So uh, look, I mean, it was now. Of course, they are inextricably linked. Of course, they are. Yeah. But like, I don't know. I didn't have this sense. Now you are a lot closer to it than me. But I didn't have this sense that that this that this level of of problem. Well, existed. I certainly didn't have a sense of this level of problem for sure. Like, I didn't have a, a sense of like eight, eighty-five million euro in liabilities, mm. and you know the the uh, you know the, the kind of uh, net assets dropping to fourteen million euro, mm. and I didn't I, I didn't I didn't think that was. But look, I tell you what, you know, there's a, the, 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 as you're aware, you'd have, you'd have you'd have seen us in action uh, enough times. The kind of the core group of football cores mm. and the various papers, you know, it's a small bunch of people, mm. you know, and when we, you know. We had, we had a pretty good idea that this was a this was a c- c- catastrophe, sort of waiting to happen. Uh, the, obviously, the scale of it we did we didn't appreciate, but there wasn't there is nobody who covers football on a, you know on anything like a full time basis in this country who thought that things were good at the FAI, yeah. uh, and who thought that it wasn't going to come out at some stage. And so one of the things that we were kind of most interested in, and I, and I think like you know it, it, you see the signs. Um, that Delaney had to keep the show on the road, and and there would have been a variety of issues that come out, have come out over the last six months, and I acknowledge him again as I have done quite a number of times. Mark Ty, I mean, like you know, um, I've had I've had a few decent stories in the paper over 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 the years, a couple of which I like to think might have brought a guy down mm. in a in a in an organisation with greater yeah, account- exactly, accountability. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they they just they bounced off like those things in you know Star Trek yeah. where the lasers just when the yeah. when the shields are were working completely well like they just yeah. bounce it off and you're thinking like I can't believe this just went nowhere. 30, yeah. 20, 48 hours yeah. later it's like back to normal, yeah. you know? Um, so there was a bit of that. But you know we would have been we would have been looking at the expenses, right? So everybody knew Everybody really deep down knew that Delaney was on big expenses. I, I knew about the, the rent, you know, but I couldn't get into print. Yeah. I knew about the rent because I was walking down a road after coming out of a train station, met a guy who was friendly with some staffers who told me about the rent. Yeah. But Donald Conway, who's the president of the association, apparently didn't know about the yeah. rent. 
I mean, I've said before, like, it's a pity he didn't bump into my, my guy you yeah. know, <laughs> in the street sometime. But so we knew about the expenses. We knew that there was that the situation financially, in very broad terms, was a lot worse than they were portraying. I didn't really understand that you could misrepresent uh, hmm. so successfully a financial situation in a set of accounts as they seem to have managed to do in 2017. A couple of times. I mean, yeah. well, yeah, yeah, but 2017, 2017 if you look at it now, they've rewritten that by the order There's a five million difference. Of, no, ooh, is, it, is it only five million? Yeah, well, yeah. wasn't it? Is they it, were yeah. supposed to have a 2.7 million profit yeah, and, and it was a 2.4 yeah, deficit yeah, yeah, or something. Yeah. So, the, so the, the figures there are staggering. Yeah. And when I, when, when Mark Ty first broke the story about the 100,000 euro check, I mean, there were a lot of theories going on, a lot of conspiracy theories, a lot to do with his separation sure, from his yeah. wife and whether, whether he's moving money around or whatever. And I was... Like a lot of it, I wasn't so sure about that. I actually, funny enough, I didn't really believe that. But I didn't either believe that the association could genuinely be so screwed that he had to lend it 100,000 euro on a short-term basis so that it could honour some check. That seemed pretty incredible to me, you know? And so I kept on kind of thinking there's got to be more to this. But it turns out, like, by all accounts, like, the more we see this... There wasn't. They they had a they had a check going out. I think it was to Dundalk. Um, they needed the money to so that that check wouldn't bounce. And so he gave them a hundred thousand euro. Then we discovered at the end of twenty eighteen they had a whip around to raise six hundred fifty grand. So uh, like some of some of this some of this we kind of had a general sense of that the situation was bad. The specifics we certainly didn't know, um, and so we were unaware. But what we were always kind of wondering was. How was John Delaney going to extract himself from that situation? There was all this talk that he wanted to go to UEFA, but he needed to get out of the FAI in such a way that he was leaving it in charge of somebody who would keep a lid on all this. Because if, say, you know, he went, they advertised a job and say, you or I got that job the next day, the first thing we would do is what the FAI are doing now, which is going, whoa, this is a car crash. We need to get absolutely all of this out there so we're not blamed for it, you mm -hmm. know? So he needed to kind of manage some sort of succession um, and, uh, and, and, and step back while retaining some sort of control or influence. And that's what we saw in March. Right. I mean, the, the, the scale of it in the end, be, try, it seemed to be way too much, way too fast. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't a managed departure. It was transparently a, a kind of stunt. Um, and that kind of proved his undoing in many ways. It was, it was, it was impossible to manage under the scrutiny that was going on at the time. There had already been the 100,000. Well, it turns out he wasn't that good a manager. You know, oh, no, no, it turns out no, sure. he wasn't no, 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 that, that no. good a chief executive, you know. As regards going forward from here, how basically is, to use the, the, the phraseology that's been used over the weekend, is the FAI a going concern at the moment? Does it need government intervention to keep it alive? Does it need UEFA kind of intervention to well, keep it alive? Look, I, you know, I'm not an accountant, uh, uh, but uh, yeah, look, I think there's no doubt that uh, technically, I think at the moment, uh, you know, I think Deloitte have a lot of questions to answer in all of this, you know. I mean, Deloitte, I, I've, I have a set of every account uh, going back 20 years, and uh, at the start of every single one, there's a little note saying, you know, we think we've been given all the information we properly need to receive to uh, put together an accurate set of accounts, and that's what we think we've done. Like, that's the gist of it, you know. And three of the four prior to 2017 or including 2017. So 2014, 2016, 2017 have all now either been revised or restated. So they were inaccurate to one extent or another in the case of 2017, fairly spectacularly. Um, 2018, where a new board has come in uh, and there is absolutely an attempt, I think, 
to be frank about the scale of the problems, even if it's only through self-interest. None of these guys want stuff popping, popping out afterwards. They, they, it was uh, in absolutely everybody in there's interest to get this all out in the open on, on Friday, as much of it as they could. And uh, and the, the, the accounts are awful, make for really awful reading. Um, but the accountants have have, have uh, 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 registered a disclaimer. I think it's called yes. technically. Yeah. yeah. So um, so they have not ref- quite disowning it, but they yeah. They, they, so they're kind of yeah. ca- expressing yeah. caution. This yeah. is the most caution they've ever expressed. Mm. You know. So it's like you know all all the other years that there was the, that that there apparently inaccuracies, or whatever. They they didn't they didn't know enough to to realise that they should be sceptical. Mm. You know. Uh, and and a lot of people outside the place were sceptical. That was for sure. But what's happening now is that they're saying that it's not a going concern. Paul Cook um, or that they can't to the fact that it's a going concern. I think that's probably a better way of putting it. Paul Cook said the other day that he accepts that. That he accepts that, that that's their position and it has to be their position because on a, technically they cannot fulf- they can't tick the boxes mm. to say they're a uh, going concern. They say that they're at an advanced stage of talks with their banks who certainly generally are Bank of Ireland. That's who they have the mortgage on the stadium with or that's who the borrowings for the stadium is with. Uh, so I, I presume it's them again. Uh, that they're in an advanced stage, well down the road, I think was the phrase to use in terms of a, a financing package that would give them a package of finances that would get them through to 22, 23, I think, uh, by which stage they believe that they'd be breaking even again. Uh, I mean, I think it's fair to say after some, you know, fairly drastic cost cutting in the meantime, but that they would break even again and that they would be able to then finally kind of resume normal living and push on from there, albeit in a heavily indebted situation mm-hmm. for quite some time to come. I mean, the stadium for one would be switched to a 15-year mortgage. But what we see Neve Brennan saying in the paper today is like, you know, you can be well down the road all you like until the, the, you've, they've signed on the dotted line. Uh, the bank is going to look at all this. And she, the tone of her piece certainly is that the figures are so bad mm. that a uh, bank restructuring by itself isn't going to do it, that they just won't have the resources to repay that money. I don't know that. I, I, I really genuinely don't have the financial expertise to say that one way or the other. I don't doubt that some sort of government um, backing is absolutely necessary. I mean, he's certainly not an organisation right now that could be turning their noses up at even 2.7 million a year mm. in run-of-the-mill government funding. Um, but, I mean, I, I don't doubt that that's substantially more support than that is, is required. Whether that involves, I mean, there was talk last week of UEFA advising them to sell the, the, uh, their share in the Aviva Stadium. I mean, that to me seems like a very kind of made-up financial transaction. Do you sell it to the IRFU, who would only, you know, wouldn't particularly, they've no, there's no incentive for them to do it, other than establishing a financial return, which, you know, immediately puts the FAI in position of paying more rent. Um, so it's, they're immediately economically worse off. Um, I can't really see the IRFU wanting to do that. It's not in their interest to be trying to chase the FAI for money, um, for a start. The government won't want to do it. And neither of those organisations will want a third party to buy into the mm-hmm. FAI, into the stadium and perhaps want to change the way it's run, the dynamics of the management or whatever. So I can't see that happening. And they have very little else to play with. So, you know, technically, I think as things stand, the suggestion is that on those accounts, they're not solvent. But the line inside the FAI is very much that they should be soon. Um, as regards the rest of it, the management structures, the kind of procurement structures, all of that, I mean, it, it's it's incredible, but it just fits in with, with everything else that seems to be emerging about the way the place was run at the moment. That is going to have to do it for today. I'm sure. I'm sure we will talk again. Yeah, sometime. yeah, yeah. Yes. Thank you very much, Emmett. Thank you. Gavin Comiskey is here to talk to us about rugby. How are you, sir? Battling along, no worries. Where were you this weekend? I was over in Northampton via Birmingham and some very windy skies on the flight home. But um, yeah, it was a, a 
brilliant. Uh, it was kind of it was like watching a test match. But the only problem was when the Northampton lads got into the changing rooms, they felt like they'd just played a test match at half time. <laughs> this is what their coach, Chris Boyd, who's this real wily 61-year-old uh, Kiwi who was part of that kind of the Wellington Hurricanes uh, set up by, back in the day. And uh, he said he walked into the sheds and looked at his team. And it was a brilliant first 40 minutes of mm. rugby. And he, and he walked in and looked at his team and he went... Oh, we're gonna lose. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, or he said it afterwards. He's great. He's actually very, he's really good with the media. Afterwards, he came in. and He was like, "Yeah, no, I knew we were in a bit of trouble." <laughs> and sure enough, within three minutes, Leinster with with Sexton down getting treated had got their bonus point with fourteen men. You mm. know, they just they maintained the, the test match level. Um, like Josh van der Flyer looks like, and I, I actually I'm not sure which whether he is. And he looks like one of the best open sides in the world in mm. games like these. And People are just going, oh, you then you put him into the highest level. I genuinely actually think he's getting, he's improving. You know, he's going up. We look like Caelan Doris and CJ is a genuine, he's going to compete with CJ Stander for the number eight jersey for Ireland. A lot of couple of things. Mm. If you look at it from a purely positive side of things, they put seven tries on the team that are top of the Premiership. Who granted, don't have all their Test match players, don't have Courtney Laws, don't have their All Blacks tied at home, Franks, but. Uh, they, they just did what they had to do. They put seven tries on the team that's the best team in England at the moment. It so they won 43-16. It was extremely impressive. And Defensively, actually, more than, more than attacking. And they are sailing away at the top of that group. Have they the most points? Yeah, they had the most, most points scored in any pool, I think. Yeah, and now six years ago, Northampton got 40 points put on them by Leinster mm. and uh, went to came back over and ruined the Christmas party for everybody but they're not going to have any of those players I've just mentioned no laws we'll be back and they're even thinking about. he said that we're not going to give up a game but we might rest a few so Leinster will just will just twist turn around obviously Sexton probably won't be playing but they'll uh, they'll just twist a pl- tweak a player or two and probably come out with a similar performance they're looking really good like even when they went to Glasgow two weeks ago with a complete B team if you want to call it that they beat what's probably the best Pro 14 team, you know, mm. so they're um, they're as well oiled as they've ever been. Is Sexton picked up a knee injury that we don't really know the extent of just now because it's it's falling at a bad time for yeah, when we're bad. recording. The Proctor the, caught him though, yeah. Yeah, it, it it doesn't look good from the point of view of Leinster going forward. Ross Byrne getting game time, big games like that is no harm, and I mean, it could also it, it's going to affect the Irish captaincy because uh, Johnny Sexton was being talked about as being mm. the Irish captain, mm. but. Ross Byrne could also be the out half for the Six Nations the way we're going. Well, they think Joey Carberry's going to be back over Christmas. So, from this ankle injury that he brought to the World Cup with him and, and exacerbated at the World Cup in Japan. Um, uh, so, I would say Jack Carty hasn't been lighting the world up. He's been okay. Um, so, Ross Byrne's next. JJ Hanron might get a call up to the squads if, if we go down the ranks. In fairness to him, he's doing okay as well. But Ross Byrne came on. Uh, kicked the, the conversion of Keen Healy's mm. bonus point try while Sexton was limping off the pitch. Then they, Northampton restarted and Doris, Ryan, the, all the young lads went through the phases back up. Within two minutes, Ross Byrne was scampering over in the corner. I think he missed that conversion. I missed another one, but he was he didn't miss a beat. Um, and also, you have to understand, this is kind of his team, you know, because he hasn't missed a beat because he's been with this team the whole time, you know. Mm, I suppose, he's been yeah. the out half the whole, while all the debates were going on about <coughs> Joey Carberry and Johnny Sexton, Ross Byrne was just playing 10 for the last two years for this team, you mm. know, so. Um, it, didn't, it really didn't work out for him in the August trials for Ireland. Um, he'd been a bit of a shocker, but um, that's the only time I've seen him kind of dip. So, yeah, he'll get it. He'll definitely get an opportunity during the Six Nations. We're coming into the, these, obviously, the back to back games. Um, 
Ulster had a grand win. Uh, got out uh, in the end, and John Cooney seems to be driving that team. But uh, John Cooney seems to be coming very close to getting picked for Ireland as well. He must know? be. He must be, especially with uh, his his pure leadership in these games is is immense. He he always seems to be the one that is doing the the really important, the game breaking uh, play. Um, but apart from that, uh, Munster got out with a 10-3 win in Tumman Park on one of those nights that were just like the weather kind of dictated it. Mm. Uh, ruined by the weather, yeah, mm. to, be, to be fair. And it's a, it's, a, it's a huge result for Munster. And now what does it do? Like Saracens have kind of, how do you say this? Like they've kind of ruined the 2020 Champions Cup in the sense that they've made it clear that they they sent, Mario Toji was their only leading, leading mm. top-class lion that got sent, like, Koch, their Springbok Whitehead wasn't there. And all their top players weren't sent to Toman Park. So that's as clear a message as you're going to get that this is not something that they're going to take seriously this season. Because that was your instinct about a month ago when we were talking about this mm. was that just their sheer Saracensness was going to make them send a proper team to Toman Park. Now, will their sheer Saracens just mean that they'll <coughs> front up and try? And, because they're still in this group, remarkably, because yeah. they got a bonus point there. So will they try and tee themselves up for a run of huge premiership games mm. by going full strength against Munster. The indications are that they probably won't go complete. They won't reveal, put all their best players back out there, mm. but they don't. They, they don't lose to Munster. They'd love to. They'd love to ruin at least ruin Munster's uh, European campaign. It's something they can do, and uh, the motivational wise, we'll see. But ever, because of the. Uh, Ironically, Europe is the worst affected by what they did to win the Premiership <laughs> for the last three years, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. By pay, the way they paid players. So uh, it's really damaging for the Champions Cup, you know, because the three, arguably two of the three, racing monster, uh, you know, and Saracens are three of the best teams in Europe in the same pool, and it should be just, should be such a gripping thing. It's going to be very interesting how it pans out, but um, really, Saracens shouldn't be getting out of that pool yet. We'll see. We'll see how much they. It might be a kick of pride, might dictate their team mm. selection this week, but. Um, it's an awful shame for the tournament, you know. But the flip side of it is, I know they played a weakened team, but I thought they were incredibly unlucky on Saturday. For one thing, okay, they made a mistake by playing into the elements in the first half because mm. chasing the lead was never going to be easy. Ben Spencer hitting the post twice with penalties, like Munster were were stoked to get out of this with a, with a win. And Saracens were well value, good value for their bonus uh, lose, losing bonus point. They really are ba- like there's, there's lots of scope for Munster to improve. Mm. <laughs> they really are battling along. Uh, uh, you got to give them credit because they should have, in many ways, they could have lost this game. Hung on in, uh, taking away JJ Hanrahan's missed, missed drop goal. They probably should have lost that game to, to racing if you take it from the, the whole sense of it. And they they got a really what could turn out to be a valuable draw. So. Um, they're just they're they're hanging on in there and they're battling and God I, I say it all the time but the whole, they're the way they play everything just changes when Carberry goes back in at ten you know um, if they get him back fully fit for the January games it does change their dynamic and it'll change the way they look because everything will kind of the I'm really looking forward for the influence of Larkham on Carberry and when we start to see it on the pitch there's such an interesting the, the Larkham thing is so interesting because like it is the sort of you know the touchstone that everybody talks about with the the sort of new monster, and yet they have the best defensive record in the competition, like the the, the lowest points conceded of, of anybody. Uh, now, partly, you know, they're after playing a ten three game, so you know that that obviously feeds into that. But it is interesting that the there's a multifaceted thing going on with them. Yeah, they have a brand new coaching ticket essentially yeah. if you include Graham Rowntree, you know, mm. and they've got in some real nuggety, real good experienced players, so or coaches, so. 
we'll see how they go. But uh, the, the Larkham thing has, because they started playing a bit more of an expansive game and all that. We and I, you, you can you can see it. So everyone went a bit too crazy mm. and excited about it. But like Larkham is still rebuilding his career. He did get like the bullet from the Wallabies yeah. back room for like there was loads of reasons why it happened. It was almost Czechist staving his skin and all that. But Larkham still has a lot. It's not like just like Lancaster landed in Leinster and everyone went oh. Yeah. Okay, this guy is real, really mm. top level coach, and this is potential. This is people yeah, are excited is, about what can happen yeah, here, not a, not exactly what has a, happened. It's a guy climbing back up the ranks mm. and rebuilding his a career that took a bit of a dent. But um, it's just it, it the possibilities are very are exciting. But it's also Munster changing the way they do things in a big way, like. When push comes to shove, uh, when they've tried this over the years, they've always gone back to what they know best, you know. <laughs> so it's great to see, but well, time will tell. There's um, like they got to go. No matter what happens, and no matter what team Saracens put up, Saracens are going to give them a hell of a game, you mm. know, next weekend um, over there. So we'll see how they go. And it's really it's time for them. I feel like they they'll feel themselves that they need to actually produce a performance that kind of reflects where they are. So you know. Do you want to do some hot Joe Schmidt chat before you leave? Um, well, this yes. isn't going away. I genuinely wrote in my Leinster preview for the weekend <laughs> thinking I'll try and park this a little bit yeah. um, because I was like a signature performance from Leinster here. Will, like, the players have moved on, probably yeah. most of the supporters have moved on, but the signature performance from Leinster will allow uh, like the media, I guess, to move on. But... Uh, Rory Best's quotes dominated like the conversation on Virgin Media. I wanted to ask you about it. You were at that. Yeah. Oh, the Rory Best. The Rory Best. Yeah. Game. So explain what happened and how it came about. Um, it was a Specsavers sponsorship yeah. gig. Um, Rory came into the room. Uh, we. Uh, it was a 15-minute interview that ended up being 25 minutes because we kind of got going. Mm. But the first few minutes were basically. Um, how was your Baba's game? And, uh, mm. How was that? And uh, didn't Bristol offer you a contract? How come you still retire? You know, yeah. and I, that went on for about six, seven minutes. And I was getting a bit frustrated, and I went, "God, we better get around to." Not, I was looking and going, "I think he'll he'll say something because he's retired, and he's always very, very good mm. at microphones for the last few years. He's got excellent data, you know, mm. and he's." Uh, as a, someone wrote actually over the weekend he's brilliant at uh, giving you what you want without saying much you mm. know but still keeping you satisfied but this time he sat down and he was put I counted it was five questions over eight, seventeen, eighteen 18 minutes and uh, it was just it was everything he read I, every single quote just went into our piece now people should know five questions over 18 minutes is nothing no it's nothing that, may, they, that only happens when the guy who's answering has something to say he knew what he was going he knew what he was going to say um, he knew he wanted to be and it's been painted, which was I thought was a bit disappointed over the weekend on uh, Virgin Media by Shane Horgan and Matt Williams, who were talking about it and uh, implied that uh, they threw Joe Schmidt under the bus. He took a lot of responsibility on himself. Yeah. He said, I made a lot of mistakes. If I had this again as Ireland captain, I would have pushed at this. I would have told the coaches to back off and just give us our team 24 hours out. He didn't take responsibility. He didn't say it was the players who did everything in 2018. He said that Joe, twice mm. in those 18 minutes, he said, Joe Schmidt is the best coach I've ever had. Mm. We just said, as a leadership group, which is Peter O'Mahony, Johnny Sexton himself, James Ryans, and it's actually about six of them, mm. they went to Joe Schmidt after they got thumped by England in Twickenham in August and said, we, what we think we can do is we want you to keep doing with your strategy, your tactics, everything, we're going to go with you, which now it turns out is they're not, they were never going to change, they were just going to get 10-15% yes. better, yeah. as New Sephora revealed and said that was the wrong decision. Mm. Uh, but they went to Schmidt and said, we just need 
Uh, but like a lot of teams do, by the way, like the All Blacks do mm. everything. We need to take total control from the captain's run 24 hours out. And then the only time we want to hear from you is when we're on the bus to the game. And that's such an empowering thing. Joe Schmidt, who nobody's heard for 24 hours, mm. then gets up and goes, nails his bullet points. And he goes, that lifts the team. And he goes, we've lost that. And turned out that... Um, Schmidt wouldn't let that happen leading into because the turnover was so short and he kept going on about this six day turnover which is not as short as other teams between Scotland and Japan and he said well we can't do it that week because we have to do tactics on the captain's run Mm. so that the the players felt their brains were fried you know and the whole thing was too much anxiety came into the camp and he goes they need the players need to do their own self motivation at that period of time whether they're inexperienced or not and it didn't happen and then he said the week of the morning of the All Blacks game was we- was weird, and Schmidt's since come out. It's getting very tit for tat. Yeah. He's on his book tour. Yeah, like really tit for tat. And yeah. he's twice said now that Easton Siva texted me and said, "Well, sorry about that." Didn't really mean that. Did yeah, go listen to what Easton Siva said. Yeah, it's very clear what Easton Siva said. You know, he didn't, <laughs> he didn't completely blame Schmidt, but also he then said that what Rory Best it was Rory Best contemplated said that he inadvertently said a couple of things I was in the room and he didn't inadvertently say anything he was yeah. very very clear about what happened and he wasn't pointedly going after yeah. Schmidt but he was saying he was culpable because he's the head coach and of course he is the know? thing that I found really fascinating Gav like we have heard the fallout from across all sports mm-hmm. you know Reviews of World Cup performances or reviews of even, you know, when you hear afterwards about a GA team that sort of didn't perform in a big game or something and you read like three months later, uh, you know, the ins and outs of what happened and all of that. And, and people look for some big blow up or they look for some big sort of failure. Out of all of those that I've ever heard, this was the what Rory Best said on Friday or Thursday, whenever you met him, was the clearest uh, and most interesting summing up of a collective failure that I've seen in years, and not a finger pointing thing, but a it genuine, really yeah. a genuine explanation. Yeah. I came away from reading that. I must say, when when your piece went up, I ate up every word of it, and I went, I I absolutely see that, mm. and I and I didn't come away from it thinking, well, Jesus, Joe Smith's an idiot, doesn't know what he's doing. I came away from it going. Okay, that's a completely human thing. That's a completely uh, intelligible explanation, obviously, of a facet of what happened. You know, you can never pin everything on one thing. But I came away from that going, okay, I get a bit of that. And that is totally fair enough on all sides. And to hear hear Joe kind of take an umbrage at it, or, and, and I really do, like, Joe's an intelligent guy. I really do. Took offence. Do whatever about taking offence, yeah. but this kind of carry on. Uh, Rory texted me. He d- it didn't really come out the way he meant it. We're not idiots. Inaccurate. We're not idiots. You can see, you could see that what Rory because I texted you after I read it, and the text that I sent you was, "Wow, Rory Best was ready to say that," mm. and yeah. that was clear. And I was texting that back to you. Yeah. Said it. Um, look, it, it was. It was. I thought he was very clear with what he said. Um, and but why? Why was he able to do it? And why won't we hear anyone else do mm. it? It's because he just retired. He's done. Yeah. yeah. Um, he's the captain of a team and he's just retired. And yes, he's in the middle of a, writing a book that would be ghostwritten by mm. Gavin Myers, who's co- covered his career from the Belfast Telegraph mm. and now works in England. Um, so, yeah, that's been released in March because he didn't want to get caught up in this Christmas market. <laughs> do you know? And he said it. He genuinely said, and I thought this was fascinating. He goes, I'm 37. 
I'm the Ireland hooker. People were talking about my place and all that. And I do not want it to come out in the wash that I was working away on a book as well. Mm. Um, I just needed to park it. He goes, he parked the manuscript in July. Yeah. And he wasn't, ironic, again, <laughs> again, he wasn't having a go yeah. with Joe Schmidt yeah, when he okay, said this. Yeah. He, was, uh, and so he was saying to me that uh, he was like, I just didn't want to be and then I said I, I asked him I said, did you know that Schmidt was working on it and he goes no we had no idea hmm. and in fairness if you read Schmidt's diaries you wouldn't think he'd been working that hard on the book it's not a go at, and I think the, the, I find it interesting that like people think that the media are having a go at Schmidt they're no. not but they are pointing out uh, stuff that's happening and I've, there's, I've never seen so many journalists rugby reporters on the same page because yeah, they're, yeah. They're most of them they're all bickering and never one, never one disagreeing with everyone <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, there's a bit of clarity to it you know the one thing I was wondering about it was is if Rory Best was actually kind of doing speaking out like he did for the people left behind if you know what I mean because yeah. I think it could be beneficial would, would you think that that's, well, that's see, possible the thing what I found yes I, I definitely think it is I think it was really important and I think the coaching ticket got that uh, the micromanagement stuff will have to stop I think Andy, it won't happen with Andy Farrell I don't think it's his style but like David Nusifora said the review was very similar to 2015 <laughs> okay that's his first line when you read his uh, when he gives his comment God, on that's IRFU TV fair, that's fairly damning isn't yeah, it? he says it himself and they have an independent uh, guy came in uh, Brian McNeese um, who's a rugby referee but uh, was involved with uh, Genesis Ireland and all that mm. and he did come in and interview the players okay there is a there is an there was something that was done but like uh, Darcy said it as well after 2011 and 2007 he goes, I don't, you don't really say much because your career is going to keep going on mm. if there is 50 recommendations okay and you want to make sure because at the moment I, I think from the evidence I've seen they're going to make the same mistakes again but if you don't want that to happen it's not about telling the public just make sure the next the, the next generation of players is aware mm. of all these errors and make sure they can see the report in full make sure they and that yes that means it gets released and yes that means it gets leaked but I think we're at a point now where, why not? Like, don't yeah. don't don't release it all. But there has to be there has to be more transparency. And Rory Best, yeah, gifted us that a little bit yeah. last week. <laughs> and fair play to him. But okay. I thought he was have to say I thought he's been misinterpreted a bit. I thought that was unfair on him because he did what we always want. You mm. know, he spoke. Well, we promise, hopefully. That that's the end of it on the Added Time podcast. <laughs> that yeah. we don't go back over. Oh, we're not finished over, the podcast for the year. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're, we're very close to it. Very close to it. Gavin, thank you very much. No worries. You're listening to the Irish Times. Well, given all the gloom around football that we've already dealt with today, Pat, we may as well finish on. I don't know if it's even more lighthearted, but it certainly felt a bit more, feels a bit more lighthearted. It's definitely quirky. It's definitely a caper. Uh, Kevin Brannigan is in with us. Uh, Kevin has a documentary going out in RT1 tonight. RT1, the big, the big leagues. The big leagues, indeed. Uh, it's called In League with Gaddafi. Mm-hmm. And it is, um, it's a caper. It's a, it's a caper um, <laughs> and it's a heist movie and it's a, it's a, it's a good laugh, but... Also, there's a there's a as as you know there's other two other elements to it, and I suppose that was the tricky part when we were making it to uh, not make light of the unlight elements that we shine a light on in it. Indeed. So tell the people what it is. Um. So it's a story about Colonel Gaddafi, Charlie Hottie, and Brian Kerr, and uh, it's, it's you know. like a, a star of a joke. <laughs> I mean, that's comedy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. It's 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 basically a story about Ireland in the eighties. Um, being on the fringes of the EU, I suppose, um, mm. global politics in the 80s, um, 
who was the pariah nation in the 80s, you know, uh, all told through the prism of Bose and St. Pat's uh, going to Libya in 1989 mm. to play a match, possibly under the false flag of the Irish Jack Charlton team, um, to play a match yeah, in, in Benghazi in Libya, in a in a state that really like uh, what like when I, when when I went back and examined it, Libya in in 1989 was the the North Korea I suppose before North Korea mm. became our friends under Trump or whatever, mm. but it was the North Korea of of its time like. Uh, yeah, it was it was enemy number one for the West, mm. and uh, Brian and Johnny McDonnell and Pat Fenland found themselves in in Benghazi playing football at one stage. They, like they they did actually, it's, it was basically a League of Ireland combined team, mm-hmm. but it looks to all the world like they thought they were playing the full Irish team, didn't they? Yeah, like when I started off the film. Uh, it was kind of in the background. People were saying, "I think the Libyans thought it was the Jack Charlton team," because obviously a year previously, um, the Jack Charlton team had gone to Euro '88. Ronnie Whelan had scored that shinner against the Soviet Union, uh, and playing for the, the Liverpool team who were who mm. was sweeping everything in Europe. So he, he he would have been a household name. And I kept hearing this, and I kept hearing this anecdote that uh, when the lads arrived in Benghazi Airport, the local journalists or the local media crew were asking, "Where's Ronnie Whelan? Where's Ronnie Whelan?" And everyone kept saying, "He's over there. He's over there." Passing off. But I wasn't sure how true it was. And then when I eventually managed to interview Captain Ali and, and mm. Khalid who played for Al Ali Benghazi uh, they were you know they, they were effusive they were saying like you know you see these players now and again on the telly and the next thing you're five ten metres from them and it was like oh you, you, did, you, think you, you did think that because you know? now we've seen it uh, and I, I loved that bit that you that, that was actually beautifully done mm-hmm. by the director I don't know if you know who uh, the director was uh, uh, in, in Libya <laughs> no by you oh I mean. okay right yeah. well it would be more done by the editor Car- Cara Holmes like she uh, she edited um, Jump Girls the TG Carter ah, of course yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and um, yeah Cara and obviously the producer Gary Lennon like they were, it was just a joy to spend a summer in a suite looking at all this archive and you know going it, through old McGill and in Dublin magazines and stuff like that and yeah because it was beautifully done you had this guy saying to camera and, and next thing you know that you're 10 metres from them and you're going it's Johnny McDonald man <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not hard to be 10 metres from Johnny McDonald <laughs> It is an amazing time capsule though of a film because when you think back to 1989 like in a way it doesn't seem that long ago mm-hmm. but the Ireland at the time was so we look so poor different world just yeah. a completely different world yeah. and of course it was financial realities that were part of the reason that Brian yeah. Kerr was put together this team to go to Libya wasn't yeah. it? Oh, oh, totally. Like, uh, Bows and Pats are knocked out of the league or knocked out of the FAI Cup at the first round, which is quite unusual because Bows usually get to the semi-final these days uh, before getting knocked out. But uh, Bows and Pats were knocked out in the first round and it was literally, um, we're going to have a couple of free weekends and that's going to be really hard to keep things ticking over. Everything was, was hand to mouth, like everything was week to week. And uh, Brian just got, gets this phone call out of the blue and uh, he has to go and assemble this squad at last minute notice and I don't think people really put much thought into it the players or or Brian or the officials it was just like if we go over there we can get a bit of cash and we can keep things taking over for another week you and know? As, uh, as one of the players says sure when would you ever get to go to Libya exactly yeah <laughs> um, but it, it just shows you that Libya was such like when you look back at the newspaper archives mm. and, and, and like today's night and stuff Libya was like was the thing at the time but it didn't seem to seep down into the players, mm. um, even though it was such a big news story with what the Irish-Libyan connection and stuff. And it just shows you maybe there was more of a disconnect between uh, everyday life and the news back then than there is now when, you know, it's it's whatever time of morning now. And uh, I know all the headlines and I could 
probably give a of hot course, take yeah. on every headline, you know, because yeah, yeah. it's in my pocket and I've been on my way into town reading it, you know. Uh, so there was more of a disconnect and a light, life seemed a little bit slower. Not to eulogise it as a better time or whatever, but life did seem a little bit slower. Because well, that was the interesting thing, that, the, that there didn't appear to be any huge opprobrium you know, like like if 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 it was mooted now that a Leave Ireland team was going to play whatever North Korea or Saudi mm-hmm. Arabia or something like that, you know, there'd be, you'd just be outraged. There'd be war. Like there, but there was outrage at the time. Like Geraldine Kennedy, uh, who was in the Progressive Democrats at the time, she was uh, not too happy with it in the Dáil. Uh, Merv Trainer, uh, members of the Labour Party. Mm. The only party who seemed quite happy with it were Fianna Fáil. Fancy that. Wonder why. I wonder why. <laughs> and if you watch the film, you'll see why. Uh, Fianna Fáil, um, some people connected to Fianna Fáil in the 80s seemed quite quite connected as well into the, into Libya. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also, the, like my favourite part of the film, if I'm allowed to have a favourite part, is when Eamon McCann is detailing uh, Gaddafi and how Gaddafi knew the intricacies of uh, Fianna Fáil grassroots and Fianna Gael grassroots. And, and I mean, and I mean, that's not grassroots as in a metaphor. That's literally a grassroots. He's literally talking about the grass in the mm. west of Ireland uh, being Fianna Fáil grass and the grass in Meath being Fine Gael grass. Yeah. And McCann sitting across from him and how with it his jaw. Meat. How it affects the meat, of course. Yeah. And McGra- McCann sitting across from him with his jaw on the floor going. How does he know? How can he possibly know the difference between yeah, these yeah, things off yeah. the top of his head? Yeah, obviously it, someone just came over and explained it to him. You know, um, McCann also. Eamon McCann is is a big part of this because he was he reported from from Libya at the yeah, time. He interviewed uh, Gaddafi three times in the eighties mm. uh, for Channel Four and in Dublin Magazine and stuff like that. He seemed to develop a bit of a graph for him. You know, um, uh, clear <laughs> graph. Uh, he. He couldn't have been happier yeah. to expound away on, on Gaddafi. Um, I think that's maybe because Gaddafi was coming under so much, you know, from Reagan and Thatcher. Mm. So uh, you pick your side sometimes, <laughs> you know. The, there was the bizarre connection between Ireland and Libya at the time. Mm-hmm. The main thing that we sent them, of course, was beef. I actually remember being, I went down to Waterford Harbour at some point with my dad and I remember seeing a boat disappear off and kind of say to him, where's that boat going now? And I remember him saying, Libya. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and I thought even then that that was strange. And uh, what was coming the other way, of course, mm-hmm. from Libya to us was guns. Was guns. Yeah, mm. totally. Um, a friend of mine, Daniel... Not, not, not as part of the same deal. Not as part of the same it deal. It should be said. Yeah. <laughs> but it, d- definitely... Statute of limitations is probably gone, but we <laughs> should still find it. The first shipment of, of guns uh, to the provisional IRA came in in the 70s. Yeah. So, uh, you know, governments and police in Europe and Ireland knew, knew that this connection was happening. Mm. Uh, and they knew in the 80s it was happening. Mm. And there was, there was actually one interview I left out of the documentary where an Irish minister has been asked, you know, about the beef deals. And then the RT reporter ends up being like, but obviously just the connection with the IRA. And then the minister's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? But, uh, uh, hey, like, yeah, it's not great. Oh, we're, not we're, great. We, 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 we've, we've told them they need to stop supporting the IRA in, you know, in, 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 in arms and in, and in moral support. But it just shows you how, how poor Ireland was, that Ireland mm. couldn't be picky about like who we were getting our money off, you know? Mm. Uh, and it happened at the time to be, to be Libya. Um, but yeah, that was a thing in the documentary I was always, you know, aware of and we were always really aware in the edit not to make light of the guns coming in because... But, but oddly, I, I thought there was even a, a, a parallel deliberately uh, drawn or otherwise uh, in a couple of times when Gaddafi would be asked about supplying arms uh, to the IRA was, was saying, you know, it is our duty to support the Irish army 
against its oppressors. Mm -hmm. So much like the Libyans thought it was the actual Irish football team, he was half presenting it as it was the actual Irish army that he was supplying. And one of the Libyan players, I think it's Khalid, is asked, what did you know of Ireland as a country? And he was like, well, I kind of knew that Libya was helping the Irish army. Yeah, exactly. So so it's like Jack Charlton's (laughs) football team, the Irish army. I suppose it's as as further away you get from the centre, that's Mm. things things look a bit more simpler, don't they? Um, the match itself, you must have the the the, the best day of putting the film together must have been when you knew that you had archive footage of the game. I I pitched the film with with Gary to RTE and we didn't have archive footage of the game yet. Mm. I, I heard about this story about eight nine years ago and I've been mm. searching and searching for archive footage of the game. And then Colm O'Callaghan, who I'd be a bit of a, a fanboy of because, you know, mm. he created No Disco, um, which is like Ortiz's best ever show. Um, <laughs> he was he was really into us doing, uh, doing, doing the film, but I was like, okay, I need to get that footage. And I'd been ringing up Libyan archives and stuff that didn't really seem to exist anymore. And then one day, I literally was just around the corner from Tara Street and Pat Fenlon rang me and he's like, I've been in the attic, I found it. No! And I uh, hopped, hopped on the Lewis up to Broome Bridge and met Pat and I was like, I've, I've got the golden ticket. Wow. I, w- I went down to my friend's house, Luke, uh, his, his dad, his dad, his dad's a good character, uh, Luke O'Riordan, and uh, he he was the only one I knew who had a VHS player. So we, we got a couple of cans and we watched the match, you know, and uh, and it wasn't the greatest game of football I've ever seen. But but, but the thing that what happened before the match for about two hours or so is this military parade in honor of Gaddafi. And that was like, you know, that was better than any football match you could ever see. And the fact that you just see every now and again Brian popping his head out the tunnel or Billy Young popping his head out the tunnel and the parade's still going on and the t- hours ticking by, you know. Um, yeah, it was great. And just the amount of people that were at it as well. Amazing. You know? There was somewhere between sixty and 80,000 people That's at this game. That's what we've deduced, like, you know. Mm. Um, the players, it's kind of a memory test as well, the film was. Like, the players were remembering the same thing but in different ways yeah, yeah, with yeah. a bit more added on here and there. I suppose, like, the more times you tell something down the pub, it then becomes a reality, you know. Because um, well, the funny, the, the the line that jumped out at me was that, that at one stage one of them goes, I "Don't remember an awful lot about the game," and I go, "What? How? Could you, what, how? Yeah. <laughs> like how dull was this game? Yeah. It, it's the only game you've ever played in front of eighty thousand people. You remember nothing of the yeah, game." In front of <laughs> one of the lads said, "Because you actually have some brilliant interviews, like Mick Moody, Pat Fenlon, oh, Mick Moody's great, Joe, Mick, yeah. Joe Lawless, Derek Swan. They're all there to talk about it, looking back on it. Mm. But I can't remember. One of them says, "I don't remember much about the game, but the pitch was awful." Yeah, I think that was Dermot <laughs> O'Neill, the goalkeeper. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and the pitch was awful uh, but the Irish goal was pure textbook Jack Charlton 1980s <laughs> goal Dermot O'Neill does hoofs and, the, yeah. and, the, and, the, and the, the the distance he gets on the ball from his like you know it's a pass back he picks it up and he hoofs it right, pa- right past the midfield and mm. nearly into the other box and it's like a Noel Quinn header and then Derek Swan like you know finishes it off but uh, yeah it, that kind of encapsulated 80s Irish football under under Jack I suppose Well look there's no point in us uh, ruining all of it for, for anybody that watch, wants to watch tonight but it is a very enjoyable hour and fair play to you you must be it, like something like this when you're finished it must be just kind of you must nearly slump in your yeah, chair after yeah that. I'm really I'm really not looking forward to tomorrow and it being all over you know it's like alright we need to we need to find the new story well it's called In League with Gaddafi and it's on RT1 tonight Kevin Brannigan thanks so much for coming in thanks lads uh, and that's us for today thanks to uh, Gavin and to Emmett who we had on earlier uh, uh, thank you to you Pat thanks Mark thanks Declan behind the desk and we will talk to everybody next week cheers